All right, so uh, before we jump into the passage of Scripture this morning, uh, what we're going to do what we always do at the beginning. Uh, before we jump into the Scripture, we're going to talk to our young ones, talk to our kids, let you all know what this passage is going to be about, what the sermon is going to be about. So, kids, if I could have your attention, question for you right from the beginning. Let's be vulnerable with each other. What are you afraid of? Kids, what are you afraid of? What scares you? Kids, do you all know what I'm afraid of? Yeah, someone said it. Sharks. I'm terrified of sharks. There. That's my fear. What's y'all's fear? What are y'all afraid of? Henry. Zombies. <laughs> That's a good one, because those are scary. <laughs> what else? What other fears? Any other fears? Who's in back? Charlie? Yes. What are you afraid? Skeletons. Legit fear. That's, yes. Any other fears? Y'all not scared of anything? How about you, you listen to this one? Scary Christmas decorations. Is that like bad Christmas decorations? Scary Christmas decorations? Okay, yeah. Uh, y'all, have y'all ever, kids, have y'all ever heard of uh, isotropophobia? Isotropophobia. It's fear of mirrors. Anybody here scared of mirrors? Some people are. How about numero, numerophobia? What do you think that is? Fear of numbers. Anybody here scared of numbers? I am too. Okay. Uh, how about uh, ephibophobia? That's fear of teenagers. Okay. Uh, kids, <laughs> kids, what about this one? Hippopotamonstrosesquipafideliophobia. Legit. That is the fear of long words. Seriously. Okay. What about this? Globophobia. Fear of balloons. Anybody here scared of balloons? That's good. Okay. How about this? Phobophobia. Fear of fear. It, uh, okay, listen. Like all these fears, like there's stuff out there that's actually legit scary, like sharks and zombies. Uh, and there's stuff out there that's like fear of mirrors. We pray for those people who are f- afraid of mirrors and teenagers and chickens. Uh, those are real fears. Okay. Is there such a, like, some of those fears are really silly. Is there such a thing as good fear, kids? Is there such a thing as, like, oh, that's a good fear? What, what would be a good fear in addition to sharks? Charlotte. Oh, you beat me to it. Fear of God. Okay, yes. Fear of God is, like, the really, really, really good fear. I was going to say, before jumping to God, like, fear of fire. Like, you should have a good fear of fire like... Uh, you can't just play with fire, do whatever you want with fire. You'll burn yourself. You could burn something down. Like, but fire can also be a really good thing, like keep you warm, cook something for you. So you should have this awesome fear of fire. And like Charlotte told us, you should have a fear of God. God is kind of like that thing of like, you can't just do whatever you want with God. You might get burned. Uh, you can't just do whatever you want with God. Other people might get burned. Uh, but if you treat God the way he's supposed to be treated, he will give you life forever. How about this? Do you kids here, do you guys need to be scared of God like he's going to get you if you mess up? No. And why do you not have to be afraid of God when you sin, when you mess up? Why? Because because he forgives you because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. Like you don't have to be scared of God because of Jesus. How about death? Do you have to be scared of death, kids? Because of 
Jesus. Like we say this stuff, and this is so good. Y'all are so on it today. Uh, but this is like really, really big stuff. Like you can look at death and you can look at Jesus. Who's bigger, death or Jesus? Jesus. Like Jesus beat death for you. He beat your sin for you. So if you don't have to be scared of God and you don't have to be scared of death, do you have to be afraid of zombies? You actually don't have to be afraid of zombies or, or scared of Let's just go with sharks. You actually don't have to be scared of sharks. I tell myself that all the time. How about this? Do you need to be, and this is a big, we all have this failure. Sorry. We all have this fear of failure. I don't know if you know this, but I see this all the time in kids that like, I'm scared to try something, maybe try something new because I might fail. How about this? Sometimes I'm scared of other people because I'm, I'm afraid people might hurt me or be mean to me. Do you need to be afraid of failing in life? Do you need to be afraid of people who might hurt you? Is it, will you <laughs> yes, be careful around people. But this thing of like, that kid might be mean to me if I'm nice to him. That kid is always mean to me, so I'm just going to be mean back to him. Like, do we need to live in fear of other people? I want to tell you that you actually really don't. Because the worst thing that anybody could do to, do to you, hurt your feelings, hurt you, even take your life. Like, Jesus is bigger than all of that. And I mean it. That's the gospel. That Jesus is the really biggest thing that there is. He's the one we should look to in awe and wonder and be like, you are so much bigger than anything else that really will help you, maybe not totally overcome and beat all your fears, but it will help you live faithfully in the midst of stuff that's scary. That's what we're going to look at today. Uh, we're, in, we're back in the Gospel of Mark. This is, you may have thought we were done last Sunday. We're going to look at that same passage, the ending of the Gospel of Mark, uh, to, uh, to point up. We've been going through kind of these major story, storytelling techniques these, uh, these certain uh, themes that Mark is hitting on as he tells the gospel, and there's one theme we haven't hit on that runs throughout the gospel that we're going to see today, uh, and it's here again at the very end of our passage. This is Mark chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. Please stand for the reading of God's word. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. is very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified, but he is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So the last word in Mark's gospel, and it's the same in the Greek too, uh, is the word fear. 
They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Fear. It's the last word here. So Mark's gospel ends with fear, which seems weird, except, except this is Mark's storytelling technique. Uh, Mark's gospel is full of people being afraid of Jesus. So in chapter 4, when the disciples are out at sea and they're caught in the middle of a terrible storm, and, and Jesus is there and they wake Jesus up, and Jesus wakes up and he says a word. And it goes from hurricane winds and crashing waves to absolute silence and stillness on the sea in a moment And in that next moment, the disciples go from being terrified of the storm to being terrified, absolutely paralyzed with fear of Jesus. And they say, who is this that the wind and the sea obey him? Uh, Like, uh, who have we gotten mixed up with? His exorcisms of demons, his healings, even his teaching. It fills the disciples, the crowds, and the religious leaders with terror, fear. Uh, Mark's gospel says over and over and over and over, up to the climactic end with Jesus overcoming death in his resurrection, which fills his most faithful disciples, these women, with utter dread. Insane. The end. Mark's fear of Jesus theme It's part and parcel of this sweeping theme that runs from the beginning to the end of the Bible. And it's this thing of the fear of the Lord. Now, I've got to just say up front, we don't exactly, we kind of, but don't exactly use the word fear the way the Bible uses the word fear. We're going to get there. But but the word of fear, the word fear in the New Testament, it's, it's always the same word in the Greek throughout the New Testament. It's phobeo, from which we get our word phobia. Uh, and the ESV translators, that we, the translation that we use, they actually do a really, really good job of translating this word as fear, fearful, afraid, terrified, trembling, so that the fear of the Lord means to fear the Lord. And you want to say, okay, wait, okay, so does that mean people are supposed to be scared of God like he's going to get you? Yeah. Yeah, there is a negative experience of the fear of the Lord. This is another place in the New Testament. 1 John 4, verse 18 says, fear has to do with punishment. Did you hear that? Fear has to do with punishment. That is how we use the word fear. Like, that sounds familiar. Like, yeah, okay, yeah, I get that one. Like, one commentator defines this negative experience of the fear of the Lord as, quote, the dread of being hurt by the Lord. As in, I'm afraid God will hurt me. Now, this, this negative sense of the fear of the Lord, this dread of being hurt by God, it, it, can't, it can be inspired by our sin. As in, it can be inspired by the world who's enslaved to sin. This dread of the Lord hurting us, it can be inspired by the devil himself who tempts us to sin. And this is how it works. Sin can inspire this negative sense of the fear of the Lord, the dread of being hurt by God, because sin tells you that if you obey the God who claims absolute authority over you, you will miss out. Sin inspires this fear of missing out on all that could be yours if God wasn't in the way. 
And so this fear, this, this, sorry, yeah, this fear, sin, inspires you to treat God as an enemy. If you obey God, you'll miss out on pleasure and comfort. And it's that thought of, yeah, if I don't pursue what I lust, then I'm afraid I'll miss out on this pleasure and excitement. If you obey, if you obey God, you'll miss out on your happiness. This thing of, uh, yeah, if I don't live the way I want to live, then I'm afraid I'll be sad, I'll be lonely, I'll be bored, I could get hurt. This thing, if you obey God, you'll miss out on great reward. This thing comes as like, yeah, if I don't focus on myself, then I, I'm afraid I won't get mine. What about me? Everyone else is getting theirs. And this experience of the negative fear of the Lord, the dread of being hurt by him, it always, always, always results in self-absorption where you're only ever aware of your own peril. Now, uh, now, when you get to that point, not only is God your enemy, other people are too. It's not just God who is in your way. You start to see that other people are in your way. And this negative sense of the, this negative experience of the fear of the Lord, it starts to look like the fear of man. Like, okay, wait, yeah, others got theirs. Okay, what about me? Will my job get me success? Do I have enough money? Do I have the right spouse? Will I get the right spouse? Do I have the right children? Will I get sick? Will I get hurt? Will I ever get healthy? Will I have fun? Will I be alone? Do people like me? What do people say about me behind my back? Am I going to die? And it's this thing of, here's, here's just one example of how, how does this work. Like, it's this thing of, I have to say yes to everybody because I'm afraid if I don't, I'll disappoint someone. And then what are they going to say about me? Well, what about my reputation? Like, I'm afraid of what people might say. I'm afraid of someone not liking me because, because other people's opinions uh, of me, they matter the most. Not God's, because really, really, I mean, like, really, okay, uh, well, like, what is God's opinion of me? Like, what does that do for me today? You see this played out here in this passage, as in, like, who is not there at the tomb that morning? Who is not there the morning of the resurrection? And it's the 12 disciples who have lived with Jesus for three years. Peter, James, and John, Jesus' three, three best, best friends, the inner circle who got to see Jesus transfigured. Uh, Peter is not there when Jesus is crucified. Peter's not there uh, for his friend, for his Lord when he dies. And he's not there for Jesus right here. Where is Peter? Uh, Peter is hiding. And he's hiding with the other disciples. And they're hiding because they're afraid, the Jewish and the Roman authorities, that they're coming for them. They're hiding because they're afraid of, for their lives. The, the fear of missing out, missing out in this life, you know, that FOMO thing, this fear of missing out in this life, these fears, they will slowly, but they will surely undo you. They will overcommit you. They will wear you out. They will, they'll paralyze you. They'll enslave you. They'll beat you down and grind you, body and soul, into the dust. 
But the consequence, the consequence, like you think it ends there, but the consequences of the fear of missing out on this life, it does not end with death. The consequences of the fear of missing out on this life, they're actually eternal. So it is not, there can be this thing of like, do you have the fear of the Lord or the fear of man? It's not a choice between the fear of man or the fear of the Lord. This fear of man, which, which is directed at this life and it's directed at this world, in back of it is this negative experience of the fear of the Lord. Like FOMO, fear of missing out in this life, the fear of man, it's a half-truth. It's a, it's a twisted, ironic lie. Because sin inspires fear that with God you're missing out. The truth is that because of our sin, we're missing out with God. And that makes us afraid of God. And it should. That is... Uh, God inspires, sin inspires this negative experience of the fear of the Lord, so does God. God himself does too. God inspires this negative experience of fear too, this dread of being hurt by him. Because the Bible says that deep down, every single person who has ever lived knows that God exists. And everyone deep down knows that because he's the creator, we're supposed to obey him. We are supposed to worship him. We owe him everything, and he, yeah, okay, he should be in charge of our lives. And everyone knows deep down and at a very conscious, everyday level, everyone knows, well, we'd rather be in charge of our lives than anyone else, including God. And so we daily usurp God's authority, and we live like we're God. And then back to that deep, deep down stuff that gets repressed by everyone. Deep down, we all know that one day, even if we deny, 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 God is going to judge us for it. Of course, it makes sense for people to be scared of God. And so many people, many religions, so many religions obey God because if they don't, God will get them. Many people go to church because they believe if they don't, God will get them. This is why certain people pray when they're in trouble because they're there when you're in trouble, that sense of fear becomes really, really real and clear to them. And then when they're not in trouble anymore, they no longer have time to pray. The Bible talks over and over and over about this experience that people have with God that people may say, that they're angry with God. They may say they don't know God. Below, beneath all of it is fear. That in truth, they're really scared of God. And this is not, this is not how you want to experience the fear of the Lord. And there is a positive experience of the fear of the Lord that won't undo you, it will save you. It will free you. It will grow you. A fear of the Lord that will put life in you. As the Bible does, the Bible does command us over and over and over from the Old Testament to the New Testament to fear the Lord. It's all over the Proverbs. Proverbs 1, 9, it's all over the Psalms. You've probably heard this before. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs twenty-eight fourteen: blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. 
But what you do not want to do, what you don't want to do, as some translations do, is soften this concept of fearing God to something like reverence for God. Like we want all of our children to uh, be quiet, folded hands in church. That's not, that's not what fear of the Lord is. Uh, after my freshman year of college, I worked uh, for the summer camp that I grew up in. And each session, every two-week session, uh, in the middle of it, you hike up the side of one of the mountains there with all the campers, and you get to this awesome, unbelievable clearing in, in the woods. And it's just, you have this sublime view of the valley. The positive fear of the Lord is not like that. Uh, so keep going. So uh, we get up there uh, one session, and we see a storm headed in. Uh, you can see it. It's just right there on the right. It's coming in, and it's coming in fast. So we get all the campers. We turn them around. We cut our, our time short, and we, we start heading down the mountain. Halfway down, one of my campers turns to me and says, hey, I forgot my Bible, and it's not my Bible. It's my dad's Bible. I said, okay, I'm going to go back for it. So I book it back solo uh, to retrieve it. Uh, and the storm hits. And this thing, uh, I mean, I'm up and I'm in the clearing. I've got the Bible and it's protected. It's under my jacket. Uh, but just sheets of rain are coming down. You know, rolls of thunder. There's just lightning in the clouds. And it is this, y'all, it's this literal mountaintop experience with God. And I'm, I'm, I'm out there. I'm like on the edge of the clearing and I'm just yelling. I'm having so much fun. <laughs> Like, and the storm is just raging, and it's awesome. And then simultaneously, the loudest crack of thunder and a lightning bolt strikes the ground next to me, and I go from yelling <laughs> to, ah! and I've never, I've never, I've never seen such power so up close. I've never been so scared. I've never run so fast down that mountain. Because uh, I've never felt more dread. I've never, I, like, that profound, that just happened kind of moment. And, you know, I started breathing again so once I got down back in the cabin. But that, like, that's something of it. Like, this positive experience of the fear of the Lord, it is still a dread. God's majesty is more beautiful than anything you could endure to behold. His sovereignty, it is infinite. His claims are absolute. His power, it is terrifying. It is terrible. This fear is, is awe in the face of God's power, his goodness, his beauty. But a dreadful experience of God like that, it doesn't make you feel safe with him. It doesn't make you safe with him. You get into the presence of something so powerful, it just exposes you're not as powerful. You get into the presence of something so beautiful, you get exposed as not being as beautiful. You, you, you're, you get into the presence of something uh, uh, so good, you're not safe when you get into the presence of something totally, absolutely good. Uh, you get scared because you get exposed as not being as good. And with God, that's a problem. As awesome and dreadful as that was, it, was, it is not a storm. It's not any part of creation that is going to give you this everlasting fear, positive fear of the Lord. It's actually God's power, goodness, and beauty in his grace. 
It's, that again, it's seeing, it's knowing God's power, his goodness, and his beauty in his grace that will give you this positive fear. Is that thing of Psalm 134.4, with God, this, this sounds so, that doesn't make sense kind of thing. With God, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Which begs that question of like, how does God's grace inspire the fear of the Lord? Think about it here in this passage. Why does the angel here single out Peter by name? You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. He singles out Peter because Peter three times denied knowing Jesus as Jesus is being tried, right before Jesus is put to death. The last time Peter saw Jesus was having denied him. So the disciples, like, you think about where they are the, the, the morning of the resurrection. The disciples, they're hiding. They're afraid. <clears throat> they're probably talking to each other about how scary it was. A couple nights earlier in the garden when they came and they arrested Jesus, and we all just ran. Y'all remember that? Oh, it was so scary. And Peter's sitting there, and he's got to be thinking, yeah, but you didn't deny him. And I sat there, and I denied him over and over. And then there's a bang on the door. And it's the women, and they burst into the room, and they say that Jesus is risen, and he's waiting for all of you in Galilee. And we mean all of you, Peter. He's waiting for you. He said he's waiting for you, Peter. When you're afraid, I'm talking to you, when you're afraid that God has every right to abandon you, because of your sin. When you're afraid, it feels like God could not possibly love you. You know, you know that everyday feeling you have, <laughs> that feeling that you have is just living day to day. Like that fear can be so paralyzing, it's just too hard to imagine that Jesus would want to be with you. It is hard to imagine that Jesus would ask for you by name. And actually, the easiest thing to do is just to hide and avoid him day to day. And the awesome truth is, he's waiting for you. Because our Lord is gracious. This is the grace that inspires this kind of awesome fear. When, when Jesus showed up claiming that he was the son of God, he's the Messiah Christ who came to bring the kingdom of God. Like you expect this savior to deal with evil, to deal with evil and suffering, and he's gonna deal with injustice, and he's gonna make everything that's wrong, he's gonna make it right. And so you, you do kind of expect this miracle stuff of like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. You expect this exorcism stuff of like, yes, more. And then you like this teaching with power stuff that just totally exposes the hypocrisy of all the corrupt religious elite. Like, yes, this is awesome. But you don't expect your savior to then get arrested, illegally condemned, beaten, tortured, and then crucified on a Roman cross. And it begs that question of like, wait, what fear and awe does a crucified Savior inspire in his followers? Like, what is there to fear at the cross when Jesus hangs there weak and defeated? What is the power, what's the power that the disciples are supposed to fear at the cross? What's the power that we are supposed to fear at the cross? Because to the world, it looks like foolishness. To us, can you see? It is the power of grace as our Lord bears 
that dreadful fear for us. Maybe, maybe we can see it a little more easily the night before Jesus' crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prays three times for God to take the coming wrath of the cross. He prays for God to take that away from him, if he can. And Jesus is so afraid, he is sweating drops of blood. And you want to say, what, can we say that? Like, is that a sin? Is that okay for Jesus to be afraid? Is that a sin for Jesus to be afraid? No. Yes, Jesus is fully God, and he is fully man. And as man, fear is the only appropriate response to the infinite and eternal wrath of God that Jesus is going to face, that Jesus is going to endure. Jesus bears the dreadful fear of punishment and hurt for us. That thing of, I'm afraid God is going to hurt me, that's what Jesus took. As one 18th century theologian described, he describes this moment in the garden looking to the cross this way. He said, Jesus had full view of the furnace, its fierce and raging flames. He saw what the cup of wrath was before he took it and drank it, which means when he took that cup, knowing what was in it, so was his love to us infinitely more wonderful, infinitely more awesome. And it's that thing of when you see the gospel with the eyes of faith of how Jesus wields all of his power, all of his might, all of his life, all of his goodness, and his death to save you. When you see how much Jesus loves you, how gracious our Lord is to you, that, that right now he has actually not abandoned you because of what he's done. He is with you and he's with you right now in indescribable comfort in the midst of our fears. Can that make you, can that gospel truth make you tremble with greater awe and a more dreadful wonder of him than anything else? And the answer is yes. Like, yes, this fear of the Lord, it can get into everything, every part of your life. Like what you do uh, when you're alone and no one else is around and there's no accountability, it can get into how you talk about other people. Uh, it can get into how you spend your money. It can get into how you spend your time. It can get into how you think about other people and how you think about yourself. Isn't the gospel can displace the fear of man with the fear of Jesus, a fear that will save you and change you. In one of C.S. Lewis's uh, Chronicles of Narnia, uh, there's a scene where there's this young girl, Jill, uh, and she's trying to get a drink by the river, and there's a problem. Aslan, who is the, the Jesus Christ figure in the story uh, of Narnia, uh, and he's a lion. Uh, Aslan's a lion in this. There's the lion by the river, and she is terrified. And he says to her, are you not thirsty? She says, I'm dying of thirst. Then drink, said the lion. May I, may I could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. And the lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do, do you eat girls, she said. 
I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. And it didn't say that as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. The lion said, there is no other stream. I'm going to leave you wondering what Jill does and what Aslan does with her, because that's what Mark does with his gospel right here, with Mary, like wondering what is she going to do. You think the gospel is over here. It's not. The end of Mark's gospel is, it's this question of what is Mary going to do with her fear? The story is left unfinished intentionally, brilliantly, because the question is like, will Mary go? Is she going to go tell the disciples? And of course, the first readers of the gospel, and of course, we know the answer. Her fear of man, it is changed into the fear of the Lord because she goes. The gospel can, it really truly can sustain us, and it really truly can change us in the midst of our worldly fears. And the resurrection of Jesus promises that in the end, we're... We are not going to miss out. Even if we miss out on everything in this life, the gospel is the proclamation that this fear of Jesus, it will lead to life eternal. He will give you everything, including himself. Let's pray. Father, it, it, it is. It's a scary thing uh, to come to you day after day, this fear of wondering, are you for us or are you against us? Are you going to eat us up uh, and hurt us? Or are you going to continue to love us, be gracious to us and comfort us, change us and get us all the way home? Father, help us to trust and believe the gospel today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day until you come back for us and until you call us home. We pray, we pray that we would Stand, yes, in awe and wonder of the awesomeness of your grace and trust that it is true and trust that you are for us, that you love us, that you're with us. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.